Today we are looking at this topic called the paradox of faith and we started, well there was quite a lot of new people last week so I, I went back a few weeks and refreshed so we didn't get through it and I deliberately didn't want to get through it because there were some truths that I wanted to take a little bit of time and I felt uh, that time was very important. We said a paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. So it is only an apparent or uh, appears to be a contradiction. It doesn't have to be a contradiction. And we looked at the first point in that and that was reducing faith or reducing God to a logical system. I think something I feel very sad is that there are so many books uh, especially last 300 years, they created so many systematic theology. There is nothing systematic about theology. God does not work from a box. And please do not try to put God into a box. Whose system are we talking about? God's system or my system? I am not saying for a moment that there is no system. But remember what God said in the scripture, your ways are not my ways and my ways are not your ways. Don't try to control me by creating systems for me. Systematic theology has a problem. It is limiting God to our limited understanding. I wanted to put together a little slideshow of a conversation between a father and a child or a mother and a child. They go out one evening, it is nine o'clock, it is almost time for the child to go to bed, but the child is not sleeping, so they stand outside looking at the sky and the child says, Daddy, what are those things up in the sky? And the dad sings a little nursery rhyme. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. To me, that is systematic theology. Somebody created something so a four-year-old or two-year-old can understand it. But if you sang the same song when your son is 35 years old and an astronomer and a scientist, he will say, Dad, what's the matter with you? We must be very careful not to restrict God into little boxes that we have created. When I was a child, what did Apostle Paul say? I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But when I grow up, I have to leave my childish ways. I think systematic theology is important to learn to understand God. And I use that word deliberately, learn to understand God. But that is not understanding God. God is much, much bigger. So as the son is 32, he will say to the father, Father, you know how you told me, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are and all that? That star we were looking at died 10 million years ago, Dad. And we are not even looking at the star. We are only looking at the light that came from that star 20 million years ago. And the father says, what? It doesn't fit into the father's theology. So he says to Dad, Dad, this star, the light from that star takes years to come to us. And etc. etc. The father says, oh, it's too difficult. And he abandons it and goes back to his little, little twinkle star, something 
uh, how I wonder where you are and all that sort of thing, who you are or whatever, and leave it at that. So all I'm trying to say is, allow God to be God. Do not restrict God to a system. There is nothing as we call systematic about God. God has systems, but that is his system. But his ways are higher than ours. My ways are not your ways and your ways are not my ways. And we need to understand that. Reducing God to a logical system puts us in a cause and effect relationship with God. We looked at this. If I do this, you must do this. Or the other way around. If you do this, I will do this. Uh, we talked about the Jacob principle last week. You remember he said uh, it is a, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, it just showed who Jacob truly was. You know, if you will do this and you will do that, if God will be with me, will keep me on this journey and that I take uh, and uh, will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. But only after all that has happened. This is so different from what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom. And all these things, Jacob, you are worried about will be added. You want protection. I am your protection. God told him that. I am your reward, he said to his father, Abraham. I am your reward, Abraham. And Abraham knew it. But it was a bit difficult for Jacob, grandson. He says, if you do this and this and this and this, then you shall be my God. I'm giving you that privilege to be my God. But Jesus turned that around and said, seek first the kingdom. Those of you who attended my session with motivation, attitudes and meaning would have would remember how I turned Maslow's pyramid, the hierarchy of needs, the pyramid upside down. You know, Maslow said, seek first the bottom needs. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Seek first the top need. Seek first the kingdom and everything will be. Do not worry about what you wear, what you eat, where you live. These are the things the ordinary people of the world, the people without faith, people who don't have a living God look for. But you should look for the kingdom. Leave the kingdom values and all these things will be added. I told you the story of how I got caught with the patient at CMC Velo who said to me, Father, don't go without praying for me because... Science got the better of me. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs or a system of thought. This is why I had suggested in one of our earlier studies that we need to abandon the footprint mentality and adopt the footstep mentality. Footprint mentality says there is only one way to walk. There is a footprint that God has left behind, the apostles have left behind, somebody has left behind, and we must all walk in that. You put your foot there, if it fits, perfect, you're okay. But we need to look into a footstep mentality. Jesus did not say, walk in my footprints. He said, walk with me. And we, we looked at this several times. You know, he said, I am the way. When you walk with me, you will not be lost. And remember, there is only one promise in the Bible. And that promise is, I am always with you. I am always with you. I think Christian life is a life that is committed to walking with Christ. Christianity is both a way of life and a system of thought. But don't make it just a system of thought. It is also a way of life. 
The success in Christian life is when one bears witness, that is, my system of thought bears witness to my way of life, and my way of life bears witness to my system of faith. They must bear witness to each other. In other words, they must be complementary, compatible, and congruent. Otherwise, we have trouble. So this is a challenge. The way of life and the system of thought need to meet. They must be congruent. When they bear witness to each other, my way of life, when it bears witness to my Christian abstract belief, I am becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of being salt and light in our communities. This is what it means to be a kingdom people. The entire teaching of the Gospels is based on finding this balance between way of life and the system of thought. It is easier to subscribe to a system of thought than to commit to a particular way of life. And this is why our training, the Alive training, we keep on saying, I'm sure Reverend Augustine and Jibi and others would have said, we are trying to create an experience, not just impart knowledge. You can get knowledge from anywhere. Read a few books, talk to an expert, but you can't get an experience from books. So this is why we like to listen to stories. Those of you in the small group, as you were listening to each other's stories, you were entering into the experience of each other. So we create an experience in our training. And I mentioned last week, and especially some of you missed out on last week, uh, C.S. Lewis, the great defender of Christian faith of the 21st century, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, he said. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Now, my contention with the great defender of Christian faith, the creator of Narnia, and the great Aslan is this. Mr. Lewis, what if I am visually impaired? What if I am blind? I can't see the sun and I can't see anything else. So your theory doesn't work. For such a person, a guide dog or a stick is more valuable than the sun. No matter how much you say the sun is risen, it doesn't mean anything because I can't see anything. This is why an experience is so important rather than an abstract idea in your head. All that is shining, all that the shining sun can do for a blind person is constantly reminding them what they are missing out of. Probably even make them jealous of all those who can see or claim to see. The second thing about the paradox is failing to understand the paradox of God's grace. So not reducing God to a logical system, that's the first one. Second is failing to understand the paradox of God's grace. God's grace is also quite paradoxical. When God declares that he will be merciful to you, it does not follow that he is going to be unmerciful to everybody else. God's world is not a binary world. He works with the arithmetic of 99 plus 1 rather than 100 minus 1. We looked at that when we looked at the parable of the lost sheep. Remember? A man had 100 sheep. He lost one. It is always 99 plus 1. Never 100 minus 1 in God's calculation. I can hear some of you saying, how about Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob? 
Israel and the nations. All I want to say in reply to that now is don't confuse election for purpose or service with election for salvation. God's salvation is available to all, but God does not call everyone to do the same thing. So we are to, when we are talking about Esau and Jacob, when we are talking about Cain and Abel and Esau and Jacob and Israel and the nations, we are talking about election for service, for a purpose, not for salvation. Salvation was equally available to all people who are prepared to obey and repent, of course. God's grace is available to all, but not all will accept his grace. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of George Wilson, who received the president's pardon, but he didn't accept it. In fact, he preferred to be hanged rather than to be pardoned by the president. We saw that last week or week before last. No person in the Bible articulates this truth better than the prophet Amos. Listen to what the prophet says. Prophet Amos, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites. Cushites are probably the Ethiopians. I think that's another translation. Are you Israelites not like the Cushites to me? Declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftu, and the Arameans from Kir? So in other words, he says, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt is exactly the same as what he did to the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israelites, and what he did to the Ethiopians. God does not just exodus. There has been many exoduses, according to Amos. You only know of one. There has been many exoduses. You see? Do you want me to read it again? I can see some of you are sitting there stunned. Let me read it to you. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kafto, and the Arameans from Kir? This is Amos 9.7. You can also read Amos 2, uh, 6 to 16, if you are uh, interested in reading all those passages. And do not presume to say to yourself, this is what John the Baptist said, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We looked at, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, we looked at the story of Ruth and Boaz. And I categorically said, please don't compare this to Jesus Christ and the church. There is no comparison. It's a story totally different. But I also said, it is a story about compassion, doing the right thing. And we trace that to the fact that Boaz's mother was the woman on the wall, the so-called harlot on the wall who rescued the spies. So I'm going to take you back to the woman on the wall. In Joshua 5, 13 and 15, the eve of the fall of the walls of Jericho, Joshua, the commander-in-chief of the Israelites, had an apparition. He had a vision. He saw a man standing in front of him with drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked him, Are you for us or are you against us? Profound question. Are you for us or are you against us? Have you ever asked that question to anyone? After this study, I hope you think twice about it. 
Are you for us or for our enemies? Uh, if you are an Indian, it is like saying, are you for us or for the Pakistanis? And now you can also add China to it. Joshua is a binary man. In his world, it is always yes or no and nothing in between. There is nothing in between for Joshua. The answer the man gives with the drawn out sword in his hand is revealing. He replied, neither. Beautiful. He says, no, I'm not for you or for anybody else, for your enemies. And we must be prepared to hear this answer every time we seek God's support. And I see some football teams praying before they go and play. I don't know what they're praying. If they're praying, dear God, please help us to play in the spirit of our Christian faith. That's fine. But if you're praying, dear Lord, please, you know, play with us and help us win or something like that. You got it wrong. You know, the commander of the Lord's army says, no, nah, I'm not with you. Oh, yeah, it's true that you are a chosen people. But remember, I have also caused exodus for the Philistines, the Arameans, and the whole Ethiopians, a whole heap of people. So I'm not for any of you. In the beginning, when God began to create, he created people. So we want a God who takes sides, our side, of course. We like to think that we are the people of God. If the commander of the Lord's army had replied, I am on your side, the conquest of Canaan would be nothing more than genocide because groups and groups and groups of people were simply butchered, even cattle, dogs and cats. It is just nothing more than genocide, nothing more than what happened in Rwanda uh, in Cambodia or many other countries, or for that matter, what happened to the Jews. It would be nothing more than genocide. One group of people obliterating another group of people. But the commander of the Lord's army said, no, I am not going to take a stand with you or with anybody else. Then Joshua asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Listen to the response of the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. Do you remember another time God said that to another man? What was his name? Moses, the burning bush. God appeared and says to him, take off your sandal. That was the beginning of the journey. This is almost at the end of the journey. There is one thing that God wants to remind us and God wants us to be mindful of. That is, this journey is through a holy land. It is a journey with God. Take off your shoes because you are with me. You are traveling with me. When you are traveling with me, you are on holy ground. Any ground is holy. And that is something we need to understand. What message does the Lord have for your servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Never ever forget that I am with you and you are with me. This is holy ground. Never do anything that is not holy. Never do anything that is unholy. This is holy ground. Rahab understood this truth. The truth that God is the God of all people. She makes a profound confession of faith. She says, 
For the Lord your God is a God in heaven above and on earth below. That is the profound statement. He is the God of all people. Now then, swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. That is what holy ground is. Swear to me that you will show kindness to my family. In essence, what she demanded of the two men was, I want you to behave like your God would behave. He is not the private possession of any particular people. He is the God of all people. The next point I like to leave with you is failing to understand the paradox of God's promise. So we looked at failing to understand the paradox of God's grace. God's grace is available to all. Are you with me or against me? And the angel says, that's a silly question. You ask wrong questions, you get wrong answers. You are on holy ground. Behave like God would behave. Failing to understand the paradox of God's promise. Joshua 6, God promised Joshua that if you walk around the city of Jericho, how many times? Any idea? Do you remember how many times? 13 times. They walked around. That was a lot of walking. 13 times. Remember? Six days, once. Once for six days. On the seventh day, how many times? So on the seventh day, seven times. So seven plus six. You remember I taught you arithmetic in, um, in a live class? Okay, how to find pages. So it's very easy. Seven and six make... 13. 13 times. That's a lot of walking. I really feel sorry for those guys, especially the guys who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and all that sort of thing. So what I like you to do is I like you to imagine them walking around the wall. Day one, they walked around and they went home. What do you think the people inside the wall are thinking at that time? What is going on? I thought they were going to attack us. Nothing happened. Day two, what did they do? Same thing. They walked around and went home. Day three, same thing. Day four, it goes on. And by now, the people inside the wall are really probably going either berserk or they are thinking these guys have gone mad. Now, there is someone who is of very interest to us. And this person is too close to action because she has a house on the wall. And her name is Rahab. And the two spies from Israel, or the people of Israel who came, told her, you must, where? Stay on the wall. So she's in her house on the wall with her father. Actually, it says father, mother, and all her extended relatives. There must have been probably 30, 40 people in that house. Must have been a pretty big house. Maybe some on the roof as well. There was a whole heap of people. Day five, they're still walking around. And I'm sure temptation takes hold of you. You open that window, the window that is very famous. Remember the window that she let the spies out and tied the, the scarlet thread and all that sort of thing? She opens the window and shouts to the people walking around. What in the world is going on here? Can you please tell me what is going on? You're supposed to come and attack us and take this city. And save me. And somebody shouts back and says, 
tomorrow the wall is going to fall down. What do you think Rehab was thinking? What? You told me to stay on the wall and now you're telling me the wall is going to fall down. You are really gone crazy or I am deceived. Do you understand the paradox of God's promise? God promised to Joshua and said, you walk around the city six times, six days. And on the seventh day, you walk seven times. And the seventh time, the wall is going to fall down. The same God says to Rahab, I want you to stay in your house, which is on the wall. If you leave, you have no hope. But if you stay there, you shall be saved. Which promise is true? Which God is right? Joshua asked the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, are you with us or are you with our enemies? And he said, neither. This is the paradox. I can be with you and I can be with your enemies. I can save you on the wall and I can save you by making the wall fall down. I can imagine the pressure this woman had been in. It's not just her anymore. It is her father saying, look what you have done to us. Now we are doomed because we listen to you. Imagine her distant cousin, cousin's children. You are so untrustworthy anyway, anyway. I mean, we should have never listened to you. You know, these are the accusations that we hear. What do you do in times like this? When your faith is shaken so badly. Will you stay in the house on the wall? Or would you abandon and walk away? This is a challenge before us. What can we learn from it? I want to present before you a few truths. First, don't compare what God is doing in your life with what God is doing in another person's life. Never compare what God is doing in your life with what God is doing in another person's life. Don't sit back and say, why am I not having the same thing that the other person? And that's what the prophet said, the wicked flourish. Look at them. They are all flourishing. And we, look, we have nothing. What's the point in believing in God? So the first thing we learn is don't compare what God is doing in your life with what God is doing in the lives of another person. Abandon the footprint mentality and adopt a footstep mentality. There is nothing systematic about God. His system is different. He may make one person rich and famous and another living on the edge each day. One person may be called to minister in the middle class suburbs and another work in the slums. One person go as a missionary to some country and get killed even before they get out of their, uh, their bus or car, as it has been the story of many missionaries. And yet, a second person may go to a country and establish churches after churches, thousands upon thousands might come to the Lord. So which God, which promise, where did we go wrong? For one person, spiritual life is a breeze. But for another person, it is a genuine daily struggle. And they struggle. The temptation seems to be so excruciating. Rahab's story tells us that you just focus on the promise that God has given to you. Don't worry about what God has promised to another person. Towards the end of Jesus' life on this earth, it's very interesting. Peter asked, what shall this man do? Jesus said, don't worry about him. You just focus on what you need to do. Don't worry about him. See, it's all our concern. How about him? The second thing we learn from this paradox of God's promise is that what God is looking for is 
our obedience. Imagine if Rahab did not obey, what would have happened to her and her family? They would have perished. Our faithfulness to God is our obedience. We looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when we were talking about moving from faith to faithfulness. You may remember it. Faith says, my God is able to deliver. Faithfulness says, even if he does not deliver, I'm not going to do the wrong thing. That is faithfulness. Faith says, the abstract theology of faith says, my God is able to deliver. I know my God is able to deliver. He can do the miracle. But faithfulness says, even if this God is not going to deliver, I'm not going to do the wrong thing. I will be faithful to my God. And that is probably what we read in Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not blossom. You know the story, don't you? The rest of it. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. And that's what faithfulness. What God is looking for is our obedience, our faithfulness. The third thing we learn is, remember, our God is able to save us on a crumbling wall. When everything else fall around us, there will still be one thing that is standing. And that is called the promise of God. The promise of God will still be standing. And that is something we hold on to. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Yes, the walls are crumbling all around us. But God's promise is still standing. That is where we know that God is real. But if we do not stay on that crumbling wall, we will never experience the joy of being saved on a crumbling wall. This is why we need to move from faith to faithfulness as a living experience. The last thing, which is to me the most profound thing, Rahab not only saved her life, she conducted her ministry and mission from a crumbling wall. She was an agent of healing to her family, extended family, her cousin's cousins. The very people who were questioning her integrity is saved. And remember, sometimes it is through difficulties, problems, and so-called failures that we become God's agents of healing. And those of you who have attended the training or going through the training have heard the cry, hurt people hurt and hurt people heal. We do not do the ministry of healing because we are fully healed. This is the mission of the wounded healer. And Rahab knows that she is doing her mission from a crumbling wall. Everything around her is falling down. There is no guarantee in the next minute her own house might, fall, might not fall down. But that's okay. Because she knows that God of the whole world, that's what she made the statement, your God is the God of the whole world, whole universe. And that God I'm going to trust, even if my part of my little part of the wall is going to fall down. Rahab conducted her mission from her house on the crumbling wall. Not because everything has gone right. And sometimes I like to hear testimonies where things didn't go right. Why do we have to have only testimonies where everything at the end turned out wonderful? Why not some testimonies? I studied so hard. I stood on my head and studied all night, but I still failed. But I still believe in the God that call me into, into my faith. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony? What a beautiful testimony that is. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear a testimony of a man who would say, I went to India as a missionary from Australia 
or a woman, I should say. There I lost my husband and my two children, my two sons. And I will stand in front of the national television and sing, because he leaves, I can face tomorrow. But what tomorrow do you have, the world asks. You lost your son, two sons and your husband. But Gladys Staines would say, the tomorrow I have is the tomorrow that God has promised. That is the only tomorrow worth holding on to. Every other tomorrow will collapse. It will fall. That doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Oh yes, it hurts. Disappointments do hurt. I still remember some time ago, Gladys was sitting in the room behind me, talking to me actually in our lounge room, and our son walked in through the front door. Joshi was probably 19 or 20 then, same age as her son Philip. And as he walked in, I could see Gladys gasping. She actually, I, I saw her do, and when you're trained, you know what that means. I'm sure she was saying, that could have been my son. Same age, they studied together, shared the same room. So we not only serve God through success stories, but even in our disappointments, we are a witness to the faithfulness of God, the truth of the gospel. And that is something we need to understand. I have a full sermon on Joseph. Some 50 minutes of talk. I might do it one day. But let me say this to you. Joseph had dreams. And it was his dream that got him into trouble. Yes. If he hadn't had the dreams, he probably would have been home with his father. Wearing his technicolor coat. And then nobody would have written any musicals. Can you imagine the world would have been bereft of some wonderful musicals. But Joseph had dreams. And the dreams, one after another, got him into trouble. Finally, there he was in Potiphar's dungeon. Many months, many years have gone by. One morning he wakes up and his fellow prisoner says, Oh, Joseph, I had a weird dream last night. And I can imagine Joseph saying, No, 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 no. Don't talk to me about dreams because I've got this condition called dream phobia. Every time I think of dreams, I just get you know, tingly feet and eyes and my hair stand on its end. You see, my curly hair becomes straight, straight away. Because I also had dreams a long time ago and those dreams got me here. So please go and talk to your dreams to somebody else. That would have been normal response. But that's not what Joseph said. Joseph said, my dreams have not come true, but I still believe in a God of dreams. Though my dreams are still shattered, I still believe. In a God who gives dreams. Talk to me about your dreams. Now let me ask you. How did this man. Whose dreams were completely shattered. In fact his downfall was his dream. Continue to believe in his dreams. Or believe in the dreams of other people. But then I also want you to imagine. If Joseph did not listen to his fellow prisoners dreams. What would have been his fate? It is very likely he would have perished in that dungeon. Dreams can get us into the dungeon. Dreams can also get us out of the dungeon. But it is not the dreams. It is the God of the dreams that we trust. It's the one who said, I am with you. This is holy ground. Joshua, it is not about I am with you or I am against your enemy. The truth is, this is holy ground. And you must understand that. 
you are walking with me and I'm walking with you. Joseph and his faith in dreams. When everything else seemed to fall and fail around us, remember, there will still be one thing still standing and that is a promise of God. And that is the hope and trust of every Christian. I shared with you a few thoughts that may have been hard to understand. I said that the paradox of our faith is first of all the temptation to reduce God and our faith to a logical system. Somehow if this is how God worked last week, this is how God should work this week. God says no. Then we also looked at the paradox of God's grace. God's grace is available to all. And unfortunately, God's grace is available to our enemies too. I don't like it, but that's how it is. I don't know why God does that. So God's grace is available to all. But remember, not all accept God's grace. And the third thing we looked at was failing to understand the paradox of God's promise. And in that we said, don't compare what God is doing in your life with what God is doing in somebody else's life. We also said that what God is looking for is our obedience. Thirdly, we said that God is able to save us on a crumbling wall when everything else around us fell. It's amazing and wonderful to find God's promise still standing. He who has promised is faithful. That is a testimony of many people. And Rahab conducted her mission from a crumbling wall. It is not from a place of safety and security that she saved the lives of her parents, her family, her relatives, anyone who was prepared to take refuge in her house, but it was through her vulnerability. So this is not the ministry to the wounded. This is the ministry of the wounded that we are involved in. We think that God has called us to minister to the wounded, but never forget that it is also the ministry of the wounded. And that's what makes this mission genuine, authentic, and purposeful. Never run away from the fact that we are wounded ourselves. And that's why we think of Jesus as the wounded healer. By his stripes, we are healed. It is through his brokenness that we experience our completeness. It is in his emptiness that we gain our fullness. When I am weak, I am strong. Well, God bless you and thank you for taking time to tune in.